I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is The Jackpod, where On Point News analyst Jack Beatty helps us connect history, literature, and politics in a way that brings his unique clarity to the world we live in now. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Meghna. Okay, before we launch into today's pod, Jack, I want you to know that... Uh, Listeners have been eagerly anticipating the return of the pod. Last week was our first week back in the new year, and I just want you to know that folks were relieved to hear from you. So let me hand over the mic for a moment to our regular listener, the man with the view from Elkhart. This is Howard from Elkhart, Indiana, and I patiently waited through the holiday season for the return of the jackpods. I hope everyone did have a good holiday season. See, Jack? Patiently waiting, <laughs> Howard was. So let's just put him at ease quickly. Did you have a good holiday season? I did, and I hope he did, and you did, and all did as well. Good. Well, I'm sure everyone at least had moments of joy over the holidays, but yeah. let's get back on track to today's episode. We're at Jackpot episode number 17. So your headline, sir. A little touch of Harry in the night. Harry in the night. So me thinks you may be talking about this guy. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so base. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap while any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. St. <laughs> Crispin's Day, I cannot do a uh, <laughs> a good impression of the one and only Sir Lawrence Olivier. That was from the 1944 movie version of Henry V. But Jack, uh, what does Shakespeare's heroic English king have to do with the concerns of our day? Well, that line, a little touch of Harry in the night, comes from the prologue uh, to the play, Henry V, where uh, the narrator, the voice, is describing how in the night, on the eve of the Battle of Agincourt, Henry would go around and buck people up, and that little touch of Henry buoyed them, fortified them, steeled them for the combat to come. The phrase was used, a little touch of Harry in the night, by Dean Acheson about Harry Truman. Acheson was one of Truman's secretaries of state, and he said that uh, when uh, Truman's men would be disconsolate over Korea, McCarthyism, inflation, terrible ratings, a little touch of Harry in the night would buck them up. It wasn't so much what Harry said to them as what he was. It was the example of Harry's character that sustained them and gave them uh, the, the nerve to carry on. Ah. Now, Jack, the question of Harry Truman's character, uh, you know, not that long ago I ran into um, a series of interviews that Truman gave to the, you know, the legendary Edward R. Murrow in 1957. And it's interesting because, you know, he's not speaking in a presidential uh, speech or anything. He's giving an interview and he's quite relaxed and, and revealing. So I have a little bit of tape from that, and folks, you should lean in a bit because it is old tape and quite fuzzy. But Murrow asked Truman in this cut to recount one of the saddest experiences that Truman had while serving in World War I, and here is what Truman said. The thing that I remember most with the least satisfaction was uh, 
one evening we were marching from one battlefront to another, and uh, we'd stop every little while for a rest. The colonel came along and caught my battery sitting down. He made them all stand up and took them down and over double time and informed me that I was to march in the double time for the rest of the night. That was a very humiliating thing, and he and I had some words on which he could have quit marching me, but I marched the battery down the road out of the side and took him up the side road and let him go to sleep. Then marched in on time the next morning, and he wanted to know where I'd been, and I said I'd got lost. I had. I got lost and let the boys go to sleep. But there any use in marching those boys like that with their packs on. I just wouldn't do it. That's all there was to it. That's the saddest experience I had. Hmm. You know what I love about that, Jack, is Truman there is admitting that he uh, really talked back to his superior officer in a way that could have had him court-martialed. But nevertheless, in thinking about the well-being of the men under him in the First World War, he went ahead and let them rest again. Now, that, I think, is right to your point about it's not necessarily only what Truman said, but what he did. Now, examples of Truman's character, you've told me before, um, were frequent points of discussion at your family's dinner table, right? Yes. uh, My father, uh, semi-annually, as my sisters and I rolled our eyes, would tell the story about how Harry Truman uh, went bankrupt in the haberdashery business in Kansas City in the 20s. And bankruptcy meant you didn't have to pay off your debts. That wasn't good enough for Harry. My father had said year after year, $10 here, $100 there, maybe $200 in a good year. He paid off every debt. And then he'd say, why did he do it? And we'd say, tell us, please. And he'd say, because of his character. Character is what you do, my father would say, when no one is looking. No one was looking when Harry paid off those debts. As a matter of self-respect, he did it. That's what character is. Mm. So, so a president was used as a kind of moral exemplar, really in the way that Parson Weems, the first biographer of George Washington, did in talking about George Washington. And, of course, generations of Americans were brought up on the fable of the cutting down of the cherry tree. And young Washington said, yes, I I did it. That sort of thing, simplistic as it may seem, You could actually say that about Harry Truman, and young people could be told, be like this man. Mm. You know, I want to note, though, that, of course, uh, as you well know, Jack, no one is perfect. No president is 100 percent morally upstanding, especially in the eyes of, uh, you know, some folks who look at uh, the president's actions while in office. Because when we're talking about morality, I just want to note that many people look on Truman with a, a little askance to put it lightly, because he also goes down in history as the only president to authorize the use of nuclear weapons and the first country to do so, right, in Japan, uh, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But when you say character is what you do when no one is looking, I hear you heading towards uh, a comparison of some, let's say, more modern presidents. Well, uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, the New York Times in an editorial endorsing Joe Biden in 2020, simply asserted Trump is, of course, a personal degenerate. What a statement. You know, when, and it's, the evidence is, is, it would be superfluous in me to do more than just, you know, give a sort of dandruff of the evidence. But 
you know, when no one was looking, he sexually assaulted E. Jean Carroll. Uh, when no one was looking, he, uh, he, he, uh, he boasted about uh, molesting other women on, a, on the Access Hollywood tape. When no one was looking, he, uh, he, he, he talked about, uh, you know, defrauding the—he planned to defraud the state of New York of millions of dollars. Trump, when no one is looking, and often even when—and this is the scandal—even when public people are looking, he acts scandalously. He acts uh, like the epitome of everything you wouldn't want your child to be. Mm. Okay, Jack. So uh, this is then in, in hearing you say a couple of times that uh, in in leadership, especially presidential leadership, um, that for example, Truman was influential on you because your father clearly pointed to him as someone that uh, you should emulate or try to be. Um, versus Donald Trump, I want to play a little bit of tape for you um, on this point because it. I need to understand from you how it helps us uh, understand Trump's continued support amongst a very specific group, and that is uh, white evangelical Christians. So here is some tape from the PBS NewsHour from uh, just this past weekend, and you'll hear Bob Vanderplatz. He's maybe one of Iowa's uh, most famous or most influential evangelical leaders. And he spoke with Lisa Desjardins of the NewsHour, and Vanderplatz actually supported Ron DeSantis in Iowa. DeSantis obviously did not win. Uh, so Lisa Desjardins asks Vanderplatz, in the event that Trump wins, remember this was before the caucuses were actually held, could Vanderplatz actually support him? Now, I've left this cut on the longer side because I think it's very uh, instructive to hear how Vanderplatz develops his thinking. Do you think he is a moral man? Elections come down to choices. And so the Trump administration versus the Biden administration, uh, I'd be in that camp of the Trump administration was way better for families and for our issues. But if it's a Trump administration versus a Biden administration, for me, that'll be an easy choice. You could choose not to vote at all. Oh, no, no, I, I would choose Trump. I would choose the Trump administration over the Biden administration every day that ends in Y and twice on Sunday. Donald Trump, as you say, someone who doesn't want to be a role model, I think there's just a disconnect between the evangelical movement that says it's about family values and supporting, and in this case, you said if there's no other choice, you would support him. Well, well, the disconnect there is right. I've not met a parent or grandparent yet who has said they want to have their son, daughter, grand, grandchild grow up to be like him. That said, I haven't heard anybody say that about Joe Biden either. And in this situation, it's gonna be a flawed choice. You have 75% of Americans who are saying they don't want the choice between Biden and Trump. But I think what I can do as a faith leader, as well as a parent, by maintaining my testimony to the gospel is by calling balls and strikes. Donald Trump is not my savior. Can God use Donald Trump to accomplish good things? Yes, he's always used flawed people to accomplish good, good things for him. Okay, so that's Bob Vanderplatz, a very prominent Iowa evangelical leader, being interviewed by Lisa Desjardins on the PBS NewsHour. You actually pointed to this moment in that interview, Jack, as quite instructive, and why? Well, we see him wrestling, don't we? I mean, he admits that no uh, conscious adult could want their child to emulate uh, Donald Trump in the way my father could plausibly uh, say, emulate Harry Truman. 
he's, he's an example of vice, not virtue. So that's established. But on the other hand, uh, I'll vote for him because, well, this doesn't matter. It doesn't The president's character doesn't matter next to his policies. Those policies please the religious right. Therefore, therefore uh, they're going to support uh, uh, a Trump. David French calls the religious, what we saw in Iowa in that massive vote of evangelicals for Trump, he says, a religious movement steeped in fanaticism but stripped of virtue. <laughs> Couldn't say it better. What 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 Vlanderplatz is saying is virtue in the president doesn't matter so long as you're going to be against abortion and policy, so long as you're going to uh, you know make cultural cult further the culture war on liberals. Uh, that's enough for us. Uh, and it you know French in a in a column really talks about uh, the inverted ethical universe that these evangelicals have developed around Trump where uh, things they have always thought of as first and most important, character, decency, and so on, are out the window. And, and in fact, they're almost relishing uh, Trump's vice. Uh, indeed, uh, Jane Coaston, his colleague at the Times, has coined a term for what some of these evangelicals do. She says, they are vice signaling. Mm. <laughs> They're saying, give us some more of this vice because you're a loathsome man, but you're working for us. And French concludes, absent public virtue, a republic can fall. If Trump wins, vice wins. Virtue is for suckers, and vice is the key to victory. Wow. Okay. Well, also, Jack, to follow on that, um, you pointed out to me a few days ago that we are seeing Trump himself or the Trump campaign playing off of this, uh, this sort of, uh, let's call it evangelical Christian uh, conundrum, I think conundrum to people outside of the church, about why they would support uh, a man who's actually proud of his vices. And for example, the way the Trump campaign is playing off of this is that before the Iowa caucuses, uh, there was a video produced by a pro-Trump group that um, the Trump campaign started playing at the start of some of his rallies in Iowa. It's called God Made Trump. And it veers between religious, messianic tones that are so heavy that at sometimes I thought they were satirical, but they're not. And it depicts the former president as a vessel of a much higher power sent to save the nation. And on June 14, 1946, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God gave us Trump. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn fix this country, work all day, fight the Marxists, eat supper, then go to the Oval Office and stay past midnight at a meeting of the heads of state. So God made Trump. I need somebody with arms. That's just a 30-second bite of a video that goes on for more than two and a half minutes, and it really shows what you're getting at, Jack, which is now this sort of strange symbiosis between Trump and his most fervent believers, you know, preacher and uh, congregation almost, and a call and response, I'd say. But um, let me offer a counter-argument for a second, Jack. Does this really matter? Because couldn't we say that the central centrality or the central importance of character in a president kind of got thrown out the window 
let's say, with uh, with Bill Clinton. And in fact, Trump's evangelical voters may just be simply being honest about what matters to them, that, you know, regardless of the vessel, as long as the goals are met, character actually doesn't matter in American politics. Well, it has mattered, and you're right to cite Bill Clinton, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, that was publicly adjudicated. Clinton uh, was humiliated. But isn't it interesting that even after the Monica case, and maybe this is just supporting your point that Americans don't care about character anymore, uh, Clinton held his own. And in fact, in the election of, was it 1998, his party to the surprise of everybody, actually gained a couple of seats, something mm-hmm. that never happens in out-year elections like that for president. So, uh, yeah, maybe we've all given up on character. But if we have, we've given up on something very important, a sort of, um, a, a sort of you know, fire or flame at the center of what we think of as, li- as, as leadership. People... You know, to trust people, to believe that the president is conscientious, to believe that the president is as honest as politics will permit, to believe that the president is faithful to his vows, to his family, to his wife, to the country. All of that seems very important uh, to hold on to, at least as a possibility, maybe an impossible ideal in a world so full of uh, knowledge on the one hand about we know about these people and on the other, uh, uh, so cynical. On the other hand, I would say Barack Obama is an absolute example of a a paragon of both public and private virtue. Yeah, there's a family man for sure. Okay, Jack, uh, only because I deeply love your knowledge of history. Take us back to why you wanted to start with Truman and then wind the way all the way through Donald Trump now. Well, I want to go back to Harry Truman and to World War One, where where he was he was describing his experience uh, on the hundredth anniversary of the armistice in November 1918. Trump traveled to France and uh, participated in some ceremonies uh, around the hundredth anniversary. But but one question came up: Will you go to the cemetery at uh, Ain Marne? It's at Belleau Wood, and I've been there. And uh, in the, I was there in summer. It is a moving and beautiful place. The rows and rows of 1,800 dead Marines and Army soldiers, the rows and rows of um, crosses and stars of David, they're all white and they're garlanded with thick red roses. And you can't look at that uh, poignance without first being proud of a country that can remember its dead like that and, 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 and grateful to the sacrifice those Marines made at Belleau Wood. They blunted the German offensive on France, on, on Paris, and, uh, and the Germans called them devil dogs. They couldn't believe how, how hard the Marines fought and with what prodigality of sacrifice. Anyway, it came up, Trump, we've got to go to the Belleau Wood to visit the Marines, to take off our... To, to bow our heads to their sacrifice. He said he didn't want to go. The official excuse was, oh, it was raining, the weather was bad, the helicopter couldn't fly. Jeffrey Goldberg writes in The Atlantic, and he has sources from the military, Trump didn't go because his, he feared his hair would become disheveled in the rain. Reading that, I'm put in mind of 
a line from T.S. Eliot's post-World War I poem, Gerontion. The line is, after such knowledge, what forgiveness? Mm. Okay. So, Jackpot fans, now is the time I turn to you. Question for you for this week. As Jack says, do you think that character matters in a president anymore? And if so, why or why not? Or are you the type of person, are you the American voter who says, well, actually, no, policy is important to me above all. And if a certain president can help achieve that policy, it doesn't matter what he or she is like in terms of their character. That's what I want to know from you. And uh, you can do that, as always, through our Vox Pop app. Uh, Just go to wherever you get your apps and look for On Point Vox Pop and share your thoughts on character and the presidency. Um, Definitely want to hear from you. Now, Jack, we're going to take a quick break here and listen to the feedback that you got from last week's podcast. But before we take that break, um, I just want to go back to that 1957 Edward R. Murrow interview and give Harry Truman the last word. Demagoguery, you know, can cause more trouble than any other thing in the world. We've had a great many demagogues in this country. Do you anticipate that we'll have some more in the future? Well, of course. Of course, we're constituted that way. Every free country has. Okay, but here's the interesting thing. In a retake of that question, Truman added this coda. Every republic has been uh, troubled with such men, and I think we, as our education improves, we'll be able to survive any sort of a demagogue. I hope so, because it's the greatest republic in the history of the world, I want to see it continue. Harry Truman in 1957 there saying that with greater education of the American populace, he hoped that this nation would avoid a future demagogue. We'll have more in just a moment. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. All right, we're back. And Jack, so many responses to last week's Jackpod, where you talked about discontent with democracy and the discontent particularly felt amongst working class white Americans and young Americans, too. Now, Jackpod listeners are so thoughtful and provocative. Unfortunately, I cannot play all of the messages that you got, Jack, because there were just so many. But I have to say, there was a specific theme that popped up in a lot of the responses. And so let's take a quick tour uh, of where that theme showed up. So first of all, this is Janine Hayden from Marion, Michigan. And you'll also hear John Fitzgerald from Camden, Maine. I guess a a rule by the few has come to fruition. 
and money plays a large role in that. You know, rich getting richer, poor getting poorer, the split between economic classes, I think, is is part of this problem that they see. By the way, Jack, John heard one of the jackpods from last year where we talked about your book, The Age of Betrayal, and he bought it, and he's halfway through it now. And uh, John also wonders if we are in a new age of betrayal. Okay, so next up here we have Miles Allison from Austin, Texas. I think Americans are absolutely going to reject democracy because uh, the United States isn't a democracy. There's absolutely no question that the entire country is bought and paid for by the ultra-wealthy. So obviously the theme is, it's American capitalism, stupid. And also that us workers should have a major say in how the proceeds of our labor is distributed. This occurred in American history with Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal creating a socialized capitalist model. So that was Howard Turner, the man from Elkhart, Indiana. And then you also heard Joe Shadler from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And finally, here's Kyle Pontieri. He's 27 from Aurora, Colorado, and 30-something Ricardo Munoz from Los Angeles. I'm discontent with American democracy because political systems need to be able to change. And our political system seems stagnant due to the impact wealth has on it. Um, And that is scary. A lot of my generation's economic woes come from the shortcomings and failures of how the current capitalist system has been set up, a lot more than the shortcomings of our democracy. It is the free market capitalist ideas that have corrupted our democracy and exaggerated the shortcomings that it was already facing. I would want to oppose to Jack and Magna how they feel about American capitalism, its shortcomings and failures, and how they do still affect us today. So, Jack, what's your answer to Ricardo? Well, it's, I mean, it has the authority of his experience as a young person. Uh, To say there's a tension between democracy and capitalism is an understatement. There's almost a conflict, uh, you know, an egalitarian social order, an egalitarian political order. We all vote. And and an increasingly stratified and hierarchical uh, capitalist system where the rich prosper. Look Look at Trump. I mean, an upward failure sustained in life, sustained at failure after failure on the strength of his father's money. And now he becomes uh, president and is running again. I was, as a young man, a member of a group called the Democratic Socialist Organizing <laughs> Committee by, set up by Michael Harrington, who was one of my heroes. And Michael Harrington used to say, you know, democracy, it stops at the workplace. I mean, we stop at the, at the economy. What about a democratized economy? Mm. Isn't that possible? It worked, you know, in other words, he was, he was saying, let's end the contradiction, not by extending the market system into the political system, which we've done with campaign contributions and corruptions, but the other way, extend the democracy into the economy such that people can make choices collectively about how we're going to live. And things won't happen. He, he called the 20th century the accidental century because there'd been no uh, effort to plan, to try to say what comes first here, freedom, democracy, 
or cash. And of course, you could say, well, that's so naive, that's so... But he pointed even back in those prehistoric days to, you know, things in Germany where there were things called co-determination, where workers and, and employers got together and planned and talked about what was going to be... In other words, there were efforts under social democracy to uh, move democracy and equality into the economy mm. and to try to reorder it that way. Maybe a pipe dream, but who knows? There was a wonderful <laughs> book by a social democrat a few years ago. It was called Ill Fares the Land. And it's from a couplet of by Oliver Goldsmith, Ill Fares the Land to Hastening Ills of Prey, Where Wealth Accumulates and Men Decay. Ugh. Well, Jack, uh, first of all, I want to do a future jackpot about um, your photographic memory, which never fails to impress. But also, um, you know, what I take from Kyle and Ricardo's thoughts, our younger listeners uh, below 30 or 30 and below there at the end is that uh, in a healthy democracy, it ought to be self-correcting, right? Self-correcting when the mm. economic imbalances become mm. uh, unsustainable. But it sounds like their fear is that the self-correcting capacity of our democracy may be diminished, if not completely extinguished. And that's why Kyle said it's scary. So some very sobering thoughts there from our listeners. And once again, we look forward to hearing from you about uh, character and the president. But that's it for today's Jackpot episode. So, Jack, what a pleasure to speak with you as always. Thank you. Thank you, Magna. All right, folks, this is the Jackpot from On Point. <laughs>